Chapter 15 The Stomping Feet When Herman and Klaus returned to the Maisel Synagogue, the gate's door was closed. It was locked, too. I could get someone to open it, Klaus suggested, with an expression that indicated that he was still perturbed over what had happened outside the palace. I'd rather speak to Mr. Harabal, Herman replied, while gazing into the darkness of the building as he gripped the bars of the gate. Klaus nodded, and the two returned to the car. There, while Herman munched on the crescent rolls Kamcha had baked, which were so good that he had to keep himself from fainting, he again guided Klaus's driver through the maze of Yosefov from the back seat of the Mercedes. This time he had to guide him well to the east of their destination, by driving down to Loja and Cozy Streets, before coming back around Biezienska. Even then, the two had to walk through a courtyard to reach the apartment building beyond it. I only accepted her invitation to avoid a scene, Herman insisted, after sensing Klaus's continued agitation as they approached the end of the courtyard. You can make up some excuse for me tonight. She'd just reschedule it, Klaus growled. She always gets what she wants. I apologize then, Herman muttered. Don't pretend you're sorry, Klaus snapped, or that you've ever been sorry. Herman saw that Klaus regretted his anger at once, and he knew that its source came not from what had just happened, but from something that had happened long before it, in the gardens below the castle. But still he told him, You're wrong. I'm sorry for lots of things I've done. I'm even more sorry for things I haven't. I'm sorry for things I can never apologize for. The conversation ended at that, and the two reached Dushni Street, where they stepped inside a five-story apartment building across from the synagogue and climbed to the fourth floor. On a door down the corridor, Klaus knocked, and a tall elderly man greeted the two in Czech with lots of friendliness. Klaus responded in the same language and with perfect fluency. He told the man what they were doing there and what they wanted from him. With great excitement, the man led the two inside his flat and up to a window that overlooked the synagogue, so he could show them where he discovered the body. Pana Harabale, Herman began in Czech, with the lack of confidence in his words and his mind fumbling for the right ones to add after it. Even though he had lived in Prague for more than twenty years with a native Czech speaker and could read and understand the language without much problem, he was never able to turn himself into a fluent speaker, despite how much he loved Czech and enjoyed both speaking it and peppering his sentences with it. He did the latter so often when I was growing up that I would often repeat the words in school and among others without realizing that no one would understand them. To this day, I have to fight the urge to use many of them, especially as they often sound better than their English equivalents. Why say bad weather when you could say slota? Why say careful when you could say pozor? The sound of the words evokes their meaning. From my grandfather, 
who was certainly the unlikeliest of ambassadors for the Czech language. I learned not just the language, but just how beautiful it is. It's a beauty that brightens the darkest of my days, where I recall the words that my grandfather would read to me from the threshold of my room when I was a child. The words of Bozhena Nemsova and the brothers Chapik and Otto Pavel. Even when I didn't understand what all these words meant, they would send me drifting to the most blissful sleep. A big part of the language's beauty comes from the strange musical quality it possesses, which is something that never ceased to cause wonder in both Herman and me. Czechs sing when they talk, without even realizing that they're singing. My grandfather said that he had seen operas that weren't as melodious as an everyday conversation between two random Czechs. Even the banal conversation between Klaus and Mr. Harabo sounded musical to his ears. The problem Herman had with speaking Czech fluently was that it had been too easy getting by speaking German in Prague, especially with Anna. At times like the one in Mr. Harabo's apartment, he regretted how easy, as the last thing he wanted was for Klaus to have to translate for him. I can speak German, Mr. Harabel insisted in this language, over the sound of a small dog barking in the adjoining room. He was sitting right there, he added while pointing to the spot through the window, the Nazi officer up against the shrubs. You found him while you were walking your dog, Herman noted. That's right, Mr. Arabo replied with a nod. This led Herman to ask, Was this when you left the building or when you returned? It was when I came back, answered Mr. Arabo. Are you sure he wasn't out there when you left? Herman asked next. I'm certain of it, Mr. Arabo maintained without any hesitation. I would have seen him from the building's front door. And Pepin would have too. That's my dog. You said that this happened at ten o'clock, Herman went on. Are you certain of this as well? I'm certain of it, Mr. Harabo asserted. I take Pepin out every night at ten, or within a few minutes of it. We go right after the nightly news on the radio, or what passes for it. Right then, Mr. Harabo must have remembered who was in the room with him, because he turned to Klaus and said, of course, I don't listen to those horrible BBC broadcasts. Klaus nodded at this. He did so skeptically, as Mr. Arabo shot Herman a surreptitious wink. Had you ever seen the dead man before, inquired Herman, while trying to suppress a smile? Never, Mr. Arabo answered. Are you sure about that question, Herman? You never saw him even in passing? Not even in passing, Mr. Harabo contended. Do you remember where you went that night, was Herman's next question. Mr. Harabo responded by pointing out the window and saying, Where I always go, around the block. He further demonstrated his path by turning in something of a circle while saying, Down Dushny, then around Ustari Shkoli onto Vyazienska, before coming back up Dushny. From this, it wasn't difficult for Herman to determine that the man's route was a simple and relatively small rectangle, which caused him to inquire, 
You didn't hear anything along the way? Like what? Mr. Arable inquired back. A fight or a commotion, Herman explained. Some kind of disturbance. I didn't hear anything like that, Mr. Harabo remarked while shaking his head, or anything at all, really. But truthfully, my hearing isn't what it used to be. I'm surprised that I could hear all those stomping feet. Stomping feet, Herman uttered. Almost every night I hear them, Mr. Harabo uttered back. For how long has this been going on, Herman questioned. Months now, Mr. Arabo stated. Who's behind them, Herman questioned next. That I've never seen, noted Mr. Arabo, but he must be somewhere nearby. Did you hear these stomping feet on the night of the murder, Herman asked. I did, in fact, Mr. Arabo replied. On your way from the building or on your way back, Herman then asked. Strictly speaking, Mr. Arabo told him, from the moment I step outside my building, I'm on my way back. Was it during the first half of your walk or the second, Herman said. I'd say that it was sometime in the middle of it, Mr. Arabo said back. Herman had nothing left to ask, so he began eyeing the door. But before he could take even a step toward it, another question came to him. Have you noticed anything else strange of late? Mr. Arabo thought about this a while, and he mentioned, I did see this woman a few nights after I found the body. As Pepin and I were leaving the building, she was walking inside that long closed synagogue over there. Can you describe her, Herman inquired. She was too far away, answered Mr. Arabo. All I could tell you is that she was wearing a yellow shawl. Now there really were no more questions to ask, so the two men left Mr. Harabal's apartment, much to the disappointment of Mr. Harabal, who had clearly been enjoying the company, and they returned down the staircase. What do you make of those stomping feet, Klaus uttered, as they stopped outside the front door. I'm not sure, Herman replied. The only thing I'm certain of is, like the previous murder, this one didn't take place where the victim was found. Maybe he just didn't hear it take place, Klaus went on. He did say that his hearing is bad. He had no trouble hearing those stomping feet, Herman countered. They could have been loud, Klaus countered back. So would a murder, most likely, Herman remarked. Besides, he had no trouble hearing me, and I wasn't speaking loudly at all. The dog, too, would have alerted him to anything unusual. He barked the moment he heard my bad check. So where do you think Captain Gruber was killed, Klaus asked. That I don't know, Herman had to acknowledge, before he and Klaus walked up to the shrubbery, where Herman noted this was about where Gruber was found. About, answered Klaus. With his back against the bushes, questioned Herman. Yes, Klaus said. Carefully, Herman inspected the area in and around the bushes and the cobblestone path that was behind them and ran parallel to them. But he saw nothing out of the ordinary, nor were there any footprints on the ground or broken branches 
or any other indication that someone had trampled through the area. The scene seemed completely devoid of clues, which only intensified his speculation. Tell me something, he mumbled to Klaus before taking a long pause and adding, Were you here when the body was found? I arrived about a half hour afterward, Klaus told him. Had the body been moved, Herman inquired. I don't think so, Klaus replied. Was it sitting straight ahead or at an angle, Herman inquired next. What difference does it make, Klaus grumbled. Humor me, Herman groaned. Klaus sighed a bit, but he also gave the question some thought before saying, It, it was at an angle. What kind of angle, asked Herman. He was sitting this way, Klaus explained, while motioning toward his right. As we've already established that the killer is right-handed, Herman declared after he turned back to the shrubbery, we can assume that he didn't lay the body down from this side of the bushes, where the victim would have been facing our left. So that means he must have come from the path and laid the body down from there. Both men looked at this path, and they saw that it headed straight to the entrance of the Spanish synagogue. Without saying a word to the other, they began making their way toward it.